You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and we will continue uh, this retreat with Archbishop Sheen, and today's reflection is entitled, Wasting Your Life. And I think we all can relate to that sentence about wasting our life, but uh, Bishop Sheen is going to give new meaning to that. And we'll continue with our catechism series. We're going to do Lesson 6 together, and it is about Christ foretold. And so let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seed of Wisdom, pray for us. So please sit back now and enjoy this beautiful reflection entitled, Wasting Your Life. Our world is really suffering from indifference. Indifference is apathy, not caring. I wonder maybe if our Lord does not suffer more from our indifference than he did from the crucifixion. There was a poet of World War I by the name of Studdard Kennedy who gave us a poem in which he compared our Lord coming to Calvary and coming to the modern city of Birmingham in England. And this is what he wrote. And when Jesus came to Golgotha, they nailed him on a tree. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Birmingham, they only passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender. They would not give him pain. They only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. And so it rained. The winter rain that drenched him through and through. And when all the crowds had left the street... Then Jesus crouched against a wall 
and sighed for Calvary. In other words, he found the cruelty of Calvary more acceptable than our indifference. I'm going to plead with you, therefore, not to be bored in life. The reason we're bored is because we don't love anything. When you girls get older, you're engaged, the man that you're engaged to will do anything for you. Why? Because he loves you. There was a Chicago florist that advertised that your husband still send you flowers. And they had to stop. The husband protested. Well, there was a reason for not sending flowers after they were married. That's very obvious. But when you're in love, you'll do anything. And you'll find that the young man will do anything for you because he loves. And so will you. You'll wear the kind of clothes he wants. If he likes pink, you'll wear pink. And you won't find it a bit boring. But in order to drive home this lesson, I'm going to take stories out of the Bible. And the first story is to induce you to learn to waste yourself, give yourself to others. We go back to King David. He lived a thousand years before Christ. And King David was in a battle against the Philistines, always the enemies of the Jews, the Philistines. And the battlefront took him to his own home village of Bethlehem. Now, when we get older, we sometimes have yearnings for tastes and visions and experiences when we were young. And so when David saw the town of Bethlehem, he said to the soldiers, Oh, he said, if I could only taste again, the waters from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. And the soldier said, All right, we will get you the water. We will drive through the lines. And they came back with water. And David held up the vessel of water and poured it out onto the ground. He said, I am not worthy to drink the water that was purchased at such a sacrifice. He wasted it. Wasted it in the sense that if he drank it, he would not now be remembered and I would not be telling you that story. When we save certain things for ourselves, we spoil them. When we, for example, save our flesh, use it only for our own pleasure, then it becomes lust. We save money. It becomes avarice. We save knowledge. And not use it to train others. It turns into pride. And so David poured out the water as a lesson that sometimes we have to waste the things of life in order to be remembered. Now, another story. 
with the same moral. And here we come to the time of our blessed Lord. He was invited into the house of Simon, the Pharisee. The Pharisees were very self-righteous people. And while he was at dinner with the apostles, a woman comes in the door. Now, you must remember that in those days, it was very easy to come into a banquet room. Anyone could walk into an adjoining house, stand along the wall, you would not eat, but you could listen to the conversation. It was therefore not very unusual that a woman should come in to overhear the conversation. But she brought a blush to Simon's cheek. He would not have minded it if anyone else had been there. But the Lord, what would he think of it? The woman was a sinner. And Simon kept saying within himself, if he only knew what kind of a woman she is. I wonder how he knew. And the woman comes closely to the feet of our Lord. My young people, you must remember that in those days, people did not sit at table. They leaned at table, as if we leaned here almost on the floor. And you rested your head on your left hand, and then you ate with your right hand from table. That's a custom that sometimes I wish would come back. <laughs> so the woman comes to the feet of our Lord, and she has some perfume about her neck. In those days, precious perfume was generally carried around the neck. And she stands above the feet of our Lord and let's fall upon those sandaled harbingers of peace a few tears. Like the first warm drops of a summer rain. And then she was ashamed that she had wet his feet with tears and she wiped them away with her hair. In those days, all women of shame had the hair down. And so it was easy for her with her long hair down at the side to wipe the feet of our blessed Lord. Then she took from about her neck this small vessel of perfume. It was a custom too among the Jews when they went to a funeral to break this perfume bottle over the corpse and then even to drop the broken bottle into the coffin. Now, as she stands above our Lord's feet, she does not do what you and I would do. You and I would pour it out gently, drop by drop, as if to indicate by the slowness of our giving the generosity of our gift. Not those who really love. She just broke the vessel, gave everything. 
and the house was filled with perfume, says the gospel. So remember, my dear people, this was no smell number five. <laughs> and Judas was there. Judas knew the price of everything and the value of nothing. And he said, why wasn't this saved and given to the poor? But our blessed Lord spoke in favor of the woman. He said, this woman has done this for my burial. Because this incident took place ten days before our Lord was crucified. And the gospel writers have kept this story in the gospel, in the gospel yes. In order that we might again learn to waste, give, break, surrender. As our Lord put it on another occasion, he says, walk the second mile. What did he mean by that, walk the second mile? Well, because very often in those days was mail, when mail was delivered. Suppose they did it here. When mail was delivered, the postman would say, I listen, I've got a heavy load today. Here, you take half these letters. And he had the authority to make you walk the extra mile to deliver mail. And that's what our Lord meant. If anyone, if the postman forces you to walk one mile, walk another. And imagine he also said, if anyone takes your coat, give him your cloak too. Unlimited giving. We would put this in the language of being generous. That bell rings very often, doesn't it? <laughs> I have a dim feeling that I'm warned up here. <laughs> so when anyone asks you to do things, be prepared to do more. Why, for example, do we get tired? Well, we think we are, we are tired because we have a certain limit of energy. Like we have certain amount of money in the bank. And as that money is spent, or as that energy is used, then we have no more, we're exhausted. No, that's not it always. Energy is renewed if we love. As sanctity and holiness declines, energy declines. Can you imagine, for example, Mother Teresa ever being tired? Here this woman who weighs about 90 pounds, who has dragged 25,000 bodies off the streets of Calcutta and converted 15,000 of them. She never seems to be tired because she gets new strength because she's broken the vessel, poured out her life as David poured out the water. I hope therefore that I can impress you not to be selfish but always to please neighbor, even when they seemingly demand too much. We might even sometimes do the foolish things. And this is the last story that I will tell you about doing foolish things. And you might learn from this that if your faith is very strong, you can do wonders. The scene I'm to describe was on the Lake of Galilee. 
Our blessed Lord had just multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And the people were excited about it. And they thought, oh, here's a great political king. He can feed the hungry. And they tried to make him a king. And our blessed Lord fled into the mountains alone. Well, his disciples were caught up in this enthusiasm. They liked it. And our Lord did not want them to be burnt with the idea that his kingdom was political. So he said, get into the boat. Go over to the other side of the lake. Get away from these people. This is not the nature of my kingdom. So here's our Lord on a mountaintop. The apostles rowing past midnight in the lake. A storm comes up. They are frightened. Our Lord is praying for them and watching them during the storm. We sometimes think in our trials and difficulties, economic, physical, moral, that the Lord has no concern. That's what they thought, too. But he was watching for the opportune moment. And as the apostles were about to despair, our Lord is seen walking on the water toward them. And they were frightened. They said, it's a ghost. Now, Lord said, be not afraid. It is I. Whenever I use that verse, I'm always reminded of a story that was told of Pope Leo XIII. Someone asked to paint his portrait, and it was not very well done. But it was brought to Pope Leo, and he had to sign it. But he signed it in Latin. Noli timere ego sum. Do not fear, it is I. <laughs> Our Lord, therefore, is telling his apostles, now, do not fear, it is I. Here we come to a great act of faith. Peter loves our Lord. And I'm telling you that if you love, you will go on doing things, not stop. And Peter loved our Lord. He wanted to be with him. He couldn't wait until he came to the boat. And he said, bid me come on the waters to you. Imagine that. Peter loved our Lord so much that he thought, well, I can walk on water. Now, can you imagine what must have happened in that boat at the moment that Peter lifts his foot about to step into the water? What do you think happened? His brother Andrew must have said, Peter, listen, you're always an idiot. Thomas must have said, what are you trying to do, join a circus? Judas said, how much money are you getting for this? And on and on they ridiculed, get back, you idiot, get back. But he walked. He walked on the waters. And why did he walk? Was it foolish? No, our Lord had said, come, come. 
Believe the impossible and you can do the incredible. Or believe the incredible and you can do the impossible. Believe the things that are almost impossible. And if you've got faith, they will come true. Our Lord has said, come, and Peter walked on the water. But then he began to sink. Why did he sink? Because Peter knew how to swim. Someday when you learn the gospel better, I will ask you the question, how do you know Peter could swim? As I might ask you the question, who could run faster in a race, Peter or John? Did you know that's in the gospel? When you get it back to school and you're studying scripture, I hope, I hope, I hope, in your catechism, find out who can run faster, Peter or John. I'm not going to tell you, but the answer is in the Bible. And so here, our Lord has said to Peter, come and he walked, but now he sinks. Peter could swim because we know that on the Sunday after Easter, Peter swam 400 yards. That's in the gospel too. Why did he sink if he could swim? The gospel tells us the reason. He took his eyes off the Lord. He began to take account of the wind. He said, oh, nature's against me. Or in our language today, in our sociological world, Peter began to take account of sociological surveys. And he sank. He took his eyes off the Lord. And so the Lord then took hold of his hand and said, oh, man of little faith, why don't you believe And then Peter was taken into the boat and our Lord took them to shore. So if you have faith, the impossible things can be done. I'll tell you a story about football that was told me by Coach Paterno of Penn State. Those of you who don't like football, close your ears and God have mercy on you. <laughs> Coach Paterno is the coach of Penn State. And a few years ago, his team was playing the University of Kansas. Now, Coach Paterno has an old mother, an Italian mother full of faith, knows absolutely nothing about football. But she has two sons who coach football. One coaching at Penn State and the other coaching the Merchant Marine in Connecticut. The score of the football game 50 seconds before the end of the game was Kansas 14, Penn State 7. The other son who coached in Connecticut was with the mother and he said to his mother, Mom, it's all finished. Joe has lost. And she said, no. 
I'll go in the bathroom and pray. I don't know why she went into the bathroom to pray, but at any rate, that's the story. She went into the bathroom. She said, I'll go in the bathroom and pray. Now this, now picture this good, good old lady going into the bathroom to pray to the good Lord. What happens now in the remaining seconds? Penn State threw a touchdown, and the score, boys, what was the score now with the touchdown? 14 to what? No. 13, right, 14 to 13. To make it 14, what do they have to do? Pick a field goal. Would there be any other way of making extra points? Forward? Yes, or run through the line. Yes, there will be another way. Well, they decided not to kick the field goal because that would mean a tie, 14 to 14. So they tried a forward to get behind the goal line, and that would count two points and make the score 15 to 14. They tried it, and they missed. But Kansas was offside. So they had to try it over again. And the next time they made it, well, her son screamed. And he shouted out, Mom, they won. And she came out and she said, I told you, I told you. (laughs) So you see, you believe, believe the incredible and you can do the impossible. And it would seem as if Coach Joe Paterno's wisdom had won the game, but actually it was the mother. Now my time is up. Oh, yes. Listen, my good, my good people. It's always better for you to say, I wished he had talked longer than to have you say he had three good chances to quit. <laughs> I hope now that you'll carry away from this talk two lessons. First of all, I hope the women will become interested in football. That'll help, won't it? <laughs> And secondly, be generous with yourself. Just give, give, give. And as we give, we get. This is the gospel lesson. As we pour out ourselves, God gives us strength. Now, for example, we know, let me tell you, when I came over here, I was dead tired. I didn't want to talk. I didn't feel like it. So I said to the good Lord, I'm tired now, and I'm going to talk on using strength. Spend yourself. Give me strength. Do I look tired? No. (laughs) Thank you. Now, everybody be generous, generous with self. I know that when I go now that Monsignor is going to talk about being generous in other ways. (laughs) But I mean being generous with yourself, your energy, your kindness to others, your charity, your helpfulness, because then you will be real Christians. This friend of mine that I told you who was in the prison for 14 years, when he got out of prison in Romania, he was walking along the street and found a boy, and he said, do you believe in Christ? 
And the boy said, no. Why don't you? The little boy says, you think Christ is God, don't you? Well, now, if Christ is God, if Jesus is God, he can do what God does. God made flowers. Flowers made other flowers. God made elephants. Elephants made other elephants. And nobody's ever given me anything. And if Jesus is God, then he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. But I've never found another Jesus. My father's an alcoholic. My mother takes in Washington to live. Nobody's ever given me a toy or a suit of clothes. Therefore, I don't believe that Jesus is God because he never made any other Jesus. And Dr. Wormbrand said, but isn't your pastor? Well, no, he said he's not. He's not. When this pastor was told, he said, oh, that boy is silly. He wasn't silly. He was right. So if Jesus is God, he ought to be able to make other Jesuses. That's what you are. Other Jesuses. And you ought to so manifest him in your lives that as you move among others, they will say of you as the maidservant said of Peter, thou hast been with Christ. Thank you, and God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me to learn our faith together. Uh, We've been studying Sheen's Catechism for the last five weeks, and we're going to be opening up lesson number six, which is entitled Christ Foretold. Uh, But I do want to thank, uh, before we get into this lesson, my good friend Anthony at FultonSheen.com. And this is the website that houses all those beautiful remastered recordings of Bishop Sheen's talks, his television shows, his, some of his radio addresses, his catechism lessons, and many of the retreats he gave. And uh, there is a free phone app you can download. Uh, of course, I think uh, can $27 gives you the complete Fulton Sheen collection, hundreds and hundreds of his recordings that you can download to your computer or your uh, other digital devices. And it's great. I know I listen to... Uh, Bishop Sheen every time in the car, and uh, he makes my road trips uh, to and from the office so, so beautiful. And so we need to learn our faith, and uh, Bishop Sheen is a great teacher of the faith. And so please, I encourage you to visit www.fultonsheen.com and support the great work of Anthony and his volunteers. And so let us now uh, receive our catechism lesson, this beautiful instruction from the Venerable Fulton J. Sheen. And again, this lesson is entitled, Christ Foretold. Peace be to you. Throughout the course of history, there have been many who have appeared upon its stage and declared that they came from God and were messengers of God. At this stage of our inquiry, each and every one of them has a right to be heard. 
There's no reason why we should pick out Christ at this particular moment any more than anyone else. But we do, however, have a right to suggest certain tests or standards by which each of these claimants can be judged. We simply cannot allow anyone to appear upon the stage of history and say, here I am. Believe me. Or, this is a book which an angel gave me. I want you to read it. It comes from God. When we start a discussion of revealed religion, we are never to abdicate human reason, nor are we ever to lose sight of the fact that we are in history. Therefore, one of the arguments that we will use is what might be called the argument of prophecy or prediction. Namely, has any one of the claimants ever been pre-announced? Or foretold. Certainly the least that God could do if he sends a messenger to this earth is to say, I pre-announce him. I am going to let you know that he is coming. Our friends do that. When they come to visit us. Appointments are made in business. And certainly God should let us know that his Messiah, or Christ, or his divine Son is coming to this earth. Now it might be argued, but there are many other great world religions and we should investigate them. That is true. But it must not be thought that these world religions, such as Buddhism and Confucianism and the like, are not in any way related to Christianity. There are many myths in history. There are many great men like Buddha and Confucius and Socrates and so forth. It could very well be, we are not yet proving it, it could very well be that each and every one of them is something like a Oh, like a bird that prepares a nest before the bird lays eggs. After all, the bird does not know, as you and I know, in anticipation what it's going to do. It's governed solely by instinct. But as the bird prepares a nest for its eggs, so providence has prepared in some way for the coming of a perfect revelation. After all, divine truth might be looked upon as a circle. There is not a religion in the world, I care not what it is, even though it is one that is starting this afternoon in Los Angeles or New York or Paris, that does not have some segment of the circle of truth. It may be only 2%. But at any rate, it is part of the circle. Now, some would have more degrees than others of this complete circle of truth. Some might have 
20 degrees, 50 degrees, 150 degrees, and so forth. So that we recognize what is good in every single religion. And then too, as we will suggest later on, some of them are yearning for a redeemer. Or it may be argued that there are likenesses in all religions. Therefore, they are all very much the same. It is true. First of all, that there are natural truths that are the same. This is bound to be simply because every human being in the world has reason. So he's, he's bound to arrive also at certain conclusions in the ethical order which will guide both himself and society. We are therefore not to be surprised that many of the ethical principles are the same, but to argue that all religions have similarities and therefore have the same cause, namely the dreams of mankind, is quite untrue. When you go into a picture gallery, you will notice that every one of the paintings has certain basic colors. Simply because they have the same colors, you do not conclude. Therefore, they were painted by the same artist. Simply because there are similarities in religions, we are not therefore to argue. But therefore, man made them all. Then, too, there are truths that are above human reason, namely revealed truths. And this is the subject of this particular discussion. Namely, God chose to make an historical revelation. And we are arguing that the one who came, Christ, as the founder of Christianity, was pre-announced. We have to prove that. There are other differences, too, which we might mention before we come to the argument of prophecy, namely, that the founder of no other religion is absolutely essential for that religion, in the same way that Christ is essential for Christianity. True. The founder was necessary for the founding. But the believer in a particular religion does not enter into the same kind of an encounter as a Christian enters into an encounter with Christ. It is the personal relationship to him which is decisive. So Christ, therefore, occupies a different place in Christianity than Buddha does in Buddhism, than Confucius in Confucianism, Mohammed in Islamism, and even Moses in Judaism. Buddhism does not demand that you believe in Buddha, but that you become an enlightened one. That is, that you follow his teachings concerning the suppression of desires. Confucianism does not demand an intimate relation with Confucius. 
What is important are the ethical precepts. And anyone who follows those precepts is presumed to enter into peace with his ancestors. Moses did not demand that men believe in him, but that they put their trust in the Lord God. He was not pointing to himself. Islamism demands faith in God and the other four tenets, but not necessarily in Mohammed. When you come to Christ, here Christianity demands a personal, intimate bond. We have to be one with him. And one with him in a way in which we cannot in any way claim to be Christian unless we reflect the person, the mind, the will, the heart, and the humanity of Christ. The argument from prophecy is really very simple. Just ask yourself if any founder of a world religion or any innovator of a modern religion was ever pre-announced. His own mother could not have pre-announced five years before his birth, his exact birth. No one knew the fool who was coming. Or Confucius. Or Mohammed. But all through the centuries, there was some dim expectation that Christ himself was coming. It is in this that the argument of prophecy consists. Now, this prophecy argument involves two points. It involves history, and secondly, it involves a person. Christianity is an historical religion. Notice that in the creed, whenever we speak of our blessed Lord, we always say, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. In other words, he's fixed at a very definite point in world history. No other founder of a world religion was ever so bound up with history as he was. We're not just concerned with the fact that he was born and suffered under Pontius Pilate, but rather with the whole background history. In the Old Testament, which we are not considering here as inspired, but only a record of documents, in the Old Testament, we find that God seems to be making a covenant, a treaty, a pact or a testament with humanity, a small group within humanity. We find this in the very beginning, that God has enters into a treaty or a pact with Adam. It involves all humanity. Adam was the head. 
whatever he did, we do. And later on, God enters into a testament and a covenant with Noah. In these testaments and covenants, there are always promises and agreements on both sides. If one party remained moral, that was the human side, God on the divine side would give them blessings. Now from the moment of the very first covenant and its breaking, God said that there would come the seed of a woman would undo the work of evil. Now, this tradition is caught up not only among the Jews, but particularly among the prophets. After the treaty with Noah, God enters into a new treaty with Abraham, whom he calls from the land of Ur. He promises Abraham, I am going to make you the founder of a people will be the people of God. Through this people will come the Savior, the Redeemer, the conqueror of evil who was promised after the fall of Adam. Abraham is also told that the people of God would come from him. First Israel would be as numerous as the sands of the sea. Later on, these people are led into bondage in Egypt. A new treaty, pact, covenant, is made with Moses. To break it is renewed again. And then finally, there begin to come now prophets. And these prophets say that into this people of God, There will one day come a Savior and a Redeemer. Here now we are speaking not just about a people that continue a tradition who have an expectation of a Savior. But we are speaking now of many details that were given concerning that particular person. We will not go into all of the prophecies that are mentioned. They are too many. You can readily get hold of a book which will tell you about the many prophecies that were made concerning our blessed Lord. For example, that uh, he would be a member of the tribe of Judah. He would be born of a virgin. And I think one of the very astounding prophecies of Micaiah's was that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. If you were predicting the birth of someone would be a kind of a great world politician, you would certainly choose a big city. Lo and behold, the prophet Micaiah, under divine inspiration, chooses the tiny little village of Bethlehem, which is called the least of the cities. And he says that out of that city come forth the one that is to be the ruler of Israel. And centuries, many centuries before his coming, it was foretold that he would be meek and humble of heart, that he would be the suffering servant, 
that he would be God as well as man. And above all, he suffered. Sometime, pick up the Old Testament. Turn to chapter 53. And read there the prophecy of Isaiah concerning the death and the sufferings of Christ. That he would be reputed with the wicked, for example, his death, which indeed he was, because he was crucified between two thieves. That he would be laid in a stranger's grave, which indeed he was. It almost seems as if the prophecy of Isaiah were written foot of the cross. Then take the many prophecies concerning him as coming from the royal line of David. That meant that for about a thousand years there had to be a male descendant in every single descendant from David in order to have a fulfillment of a prophecy. Now, that's very difficult. Take, for example, a great character like Abraham Lincoln. He had four children. But even in the short span of history since his death, there is not a single male descendant of Abraham Lincoln No one else ever made a prophecy about the founders of world religions. It's only about Christ. A Jewish scholar who became a Christian and who knew very well the Old Testament and all of the traditions of the Jews said that at the time of Christ, rabbis had gathered together 456 prophecies concerning the Messiah, the Christ, the conqueror of evil, who was to be born of that long line of Israel and who was to enter into a new covenant with mankind. 456 prophecies. Suppose the chances of any one prophecy, like the place that he would be born, was one in a hundred, that is to say, it had that chance of being fulfilled. Then if two prophecies were fulfilled, the chances would be one in a thousand. If three prophecies were to coincide in Christ, that would be one in ten thousand. If four one in a hundred thousand. If five, one in a million. Now, if all of these prophecies were fulfilled in Christ, what would be the chance of them all concurring at the appointed moment, not only in place, but also in time, as was foretold by the prophet Daniel? Well, if you take a pencil... Write on a sheet of paper, one, and draw a line beneath it. 
then under the line, write 84, and after 84, if you have time, write 126-0. Now, that is the chance of all of the prophecies of Christ being fulfilled. See, it runs into millions and Trillions and trillions. And then it was not only the question of the Jews foretelling that Christ was to come. There were many other prophecies, too, that were not among the Jews, but certainly the Jews, simply because they were in servitude among the other peoples of the world, had passed on their traditions. For example, Confucius said that he was expecting some great wise man from the East. Buddha said he was not the wise man. Someone else was to come. The great Plato said that a just man was to come, would tell us how we are to conduct ourselves before God and men. The Greek dramatist had always felt that there was some God to come, as Aeschylus put it in his work Prometheus, look not for any end, moreover, to this curse. Until some God to accept upon his head the pangs of our own sins. In other words, he would bear our sins. And to Socrates expected someone else, someone whom he called a just man. And Virgil, remember the fourth ecologue of Virgil? It has been sometimes called the messianic ecologue. Because he asked a virgin, smile on thy infant boy, at whom the iron age will pass away, golden age. when Christ appeared, he said, I am the one whom the prophets foretold. In other words, I'm not just coming here on the stage of history. You have heard of me before. That is one of the reasons why, for example, Herod was not surprised that the Messiah was born. The rabbis told him. They knew the prophecies. He knew he was to be a king, the new king of mankind. Therefore, he wanted to kill him. And then when our blessed Lord had reached the age of about 30, one day he walked into his synagogue in Nazareth. And the clerk of the synagogue handed him as the village carpenter a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he began to read off a passage of Isaiah's about what the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ would be like. Namely, his meekness, his gentleness, how he would bind up wounds, how he would forgive, how he would release captives. The audience listened with rapt attention. 
this day. Is sacred scripture fulfilled in your ears? In other words, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Savior of the world. No one else can claim this background. Christ alone we study. The others we say, Step aside. From now on, my heart and my soul will be absorbed in him who was pre-announced. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for this edition of Your Life is Worth Living. We hope to uh, be with you next time when you tune in to listen to us once again. And uh, we'd like to thank you for your prayerful and financial support over the years. And so uh, it is the summer months and we always rely on uh, good souls to come and help us out. Uh, Again, funds run a little bit low in the summer as people take their vacations. And so uh, you can contact us through the web, of course, at radiomaria.ca. Our phone number in our Toronto offices are area code 416-245-7117. And our mailing address is 1247 Lawrence Avenue West in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And our postal code here is M6L1A1. And so we'd ask you to continue to pray for us and please help us where you can. And so until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.